What's up? Welcome back to Nostalgia. Dave here with another pod. What's going on in pop culture right now? Jumbo packed episode once again this week. Going to react to the 2024 Emmys, talk about those winners and what that means. Also, going to do my Oscar nominations predictions. We're already one week away, so a lot of award season right there. And then on the music front, a surprise drop 21 Savages new album, American Dream. Very exciting. On the TV front, we got the conclusion of For All Mankind Season 4 on Apple and Monarch Legacy of Monsters on Apple, as well as the premiere of True Detective Season 4 on HBO. And of course, Guy Talk Movies, we got The Zone of Interest from A24 in limited release. Finally got to see that. And then the new release, The Book of Clarence, starring Lakeith Stanfield. So a lot of good stuff to get to there. Make sure you subscribe. YouTube.com slash NostalgiaPod, Linktree.com slash NostalgiaPod. See the links below for the brand new Best of 2024 Spotify playlist, which I'll be updating every week. My favorite songs of the year. Follow that. Let me know what you think. And let me know what's good. Let's get into it. What's up? Welcome back to Nostalgia. Dave here with my 2024 Emmys recap. Yes, the Emmys finally happened after the strikes-related delay. As a result, we just got the 2024 Emmys for the 2023-ish Emmy period. Unfortunately, these Emmys are following the Critics' Choice Awards and the Golden Globes, which just happened earlier this month. So we basically saw all these wins that we got with the Emmys happen already. Uh, And thus, it really led to a sense of inevitability, of predictability, even more so than the Emmys, I think, have had in the past few years where, like this past year, a small number of shows dominated all the wins. Now, in the case of the 2024 Emmys, those three shows that dominated happened to be literally my number three, uh, t- my top three best shows of the year per my best TV shows of the year list. Succession, The Bear, and Beef, respectively. Dominated drama series, comedy series, and limited series. We saw that one coming. Now, if you look at the breakdown of the wins by uh, Network, uh, also pretty predictable here. At the top, you have HBO slash Max with 31 wins, Netflix with 22 wins, FX with 16, Apple with 10, Disney 9, Amazon 6. About what you expect. But speaking to the domination of just a few series, The Bear won 10 times, literally all 10 awards it was up for. Beef won 8, The Last of Us won 8, Succession won 6. So it kind of went as we... You know, expected. You know, looking back to my predictions, I got almost everything I expected right, and that's not that I did an amazing job or anything. It was more so that it was quite predictable and also quite chalk. Chalk. There wasn't much of a surprise. A drama series, uh, Succession won for in its fourth and final season. Best actor in a drama series, Kieran Culkin did win over uh, his castmate Jeremy Strong, uh, which I think is pretty nice. Culkin getting a win strong and already previously won this uh, for a past succession season. Unfortunately, this means Bob Odenkirk never got the win for Better Call Saul, his last opportunity, alas. Uh, Pedro Pascal didn't win for The Last of Us, but he'll probably be the favorite, I think, in this category with season two in a two Emmys time once that show comes out next year, um, you'd have to imagine, with succession now out of the mix. Best drama series actress went to Sarah Snook. Best supporting actor in a drama series went to Matthew McFadden, his second win. Pretty great. Uh, then supporting actors in a drama series. This is one where I didn't have like as good of a feel. I thought maybe Elizabeth Debicki could win for the crown for her depiction of Princess Diana. But no, it went to Jennifer Coolidge for The White Lotus Season 2. Uh, alas. 
So that was kind of what was expected. I was thinking maybe there could be a surprise there, but we didn't even get it there. Uh, the comedy series, The Bear Wins, and this is for The Bear Season 1 at the Emmys, even though the Globes and the Craig's Choice just gave out awards for The Bear Season 2. Speaks to the kind of archaic nature of the Emmy uh, eligibility period, the June-to-June calendar, and then, of course, exacerbated by the strike-related delays. It would be nice if we could just kind of move past these uh, restrictions and do a strict calendar year type award. Alas, we'll see. Uh, then actors in a comedy series went to Quinta Brunson for Abbott Elementary, as expected. Actor in a comedy series went to Jeremy Allen White for The Bear. Supporting actor comedy, Evan Moss Baccarat for The Bear. Supporting actress comedy, Ayo Debiri for The Bear. Just a domination right there. Uh, then limited series went to Beef on Netflix. Amazing show. I thought maybe Dahmer could sneak ahead, but that was you know Netflix on Netflix. So kind of made sense that Beef was going to come out on top. And then uh, actress limited series, Ali Wong, actor limited series, Stephen Young, both for beef, as expected. And then supporting actor limited series, you have Paul Walter Hauser for Blackbird on Apple. That was one where I didn't have as good of a feel that he, Hauser kind of felt like the default pick. That's what I went with, but not the strongest year for that category, but that's kind of how it went. And then similarly, supporting actress limited series, I went with Nisi Nash Betts for Dahmer, which is who ended up winning. Uh, again, kind of felt like that was kind of the default choice. Nothing too crazy about the category. And then furthermore from there, you know, writing for comedy, writing for drama, writing for limited, as well as directing for those three went to Succession, Beef, and uh, The Bear, respectively. Um, in terms of any other, like, I think big changes, you had um, Best uh, Variety Series went to John Oliver, John Oliver moving to variety series, leaving the late night category. As a result, uh, John Oliver beats SNL normally, which runs away with that category every year. And because John Oliver was no longer in talk series, uh, Trevor Noah wins instead, beating out Kimmel, Myers, Colbert, and John Stewart. And then yeah, RuPaul wins reality as as usual. And yeah. I mean, it's and Elton John got his EGOT for winning the Emmy for Best Variety Special Live for his farewell from Dodger Stadium. Um, shout out Elton John. I kind of think when you get an EGOT with kind of lame-ass stuff, it's kind of dumb. Like, he didn't do TV. He was doing his music stuff. It just happened to be filmed. It's kind of a, a weak, like, lesser EGOT to me. And he's far from the only person who gets EGOT this way. But just that's just my two cents on that. So, yeah, I mean, the Emmys, you know, I feel like the last, like, four years or so, it's been a handful of shows that kind of dominate. I think that's kind of just the way it's always going to be, partially due to groupthink, but also kind of just things coalesce. You know, the best things or the most popular things usually rise up. It is what it is. I think... A better fix or thing we can change the Emmys is getting that calendar in order, making it make sense because we don't have to worry about the f- traditional fall TV schedule anymore, which is the reason the Emmys are the way they are. Just do a traditional calendar year like the Grammys, like the Oscars, and I think just kind of get on with it. Personally, I would like the Emmys to take place around now, have this general award season early year type thing where the Emmys oscars and grammys all take place in like a two and a half month period i think that's a good idea although if the emmys want to go back to the fall whatever personally i think it just makes more sense to switch out the calendar so that's kind of what i want to see ultimately again i have no gripes with who won it's what i expected but also more or less what i would have picked by and large you know uh 
the three best shows of 2023 dominated. I mean, we've had worse things happen at the award shows, but let me know. What do you want to see next for the Emmys? Do you agree with my changes? Are you happy with the winners? Let me know. And for more award season predictions, including the Grammys and Oscars coming up, subscribe, and I'll see you next time. What's up? Welcome back to Nostalgia. Dave here with a review of True Detective Season 4, True Detective Night Country, back five years since True Detective Season 3. Anthology series has returned on HBO, this time starring Jodie Foster. We're set deep in the Arctic Circle in Alaska during a, the, the, the yearly time of uh, Endless Night. Very exciting to be back because I think True Detective Night Country is awesome through one episode. It's going to be a tight six episode series. This is brought to us by uh, creator, director, writer Issa Lopez. Uh, of course, series creator Nick Pizzolatto is not involved beyond a cursory uh, executive producer credit. And yeah, I think this was a fantastic premiere. I'm very excited that this is back. And I think a big part of it, you have to say, is Jodie Foster doing really her first big role of any kind on TV, especially as an adult. Uh, Jodie Foster, who hasn't acted too much in general in, on the movie front lately, but you know, obviously a titan of the past in Hollywood. Um, she's likely going to be nominated for supporting actress for Netflix's Nyad uh, next week, you know, and I think she just brings a presence, a gravitas, but also just a real know-how as an actor to this series. And I think it's a great central performance as a chief Danvers, this uh, detective in this very small uh, remote Alaskan town. It's a, the fictional town of Ennis, Alaska, but it's supposed to be kind of, I guess, like a stand-in for like a gnome or like a beyond the Arctic Circle, very small, remote location. And of course, we're in the time where there's basically no daylight. It's all night. And you kind of get the uh, true detective, I think season one, vibe a little bit with this premiere as well, where there's some allusions to Maybe not the occult, but like the supernatural of some kind, some kind of uneasiness. You know, we get introduced to Fiona Shaw's character, this woman who kind of like uh, lives on the land a, li a little bit. We get introduced to her like carving up a, a wolf kill, and she's like seeing a ghost of someone she knows. And the uh, crime at the end of the movie that the detectives have to solve, uh, this disappearance of all these scientists from this remote research lab, once we find what happened to the scientists, it's a pretty grisly, it's pretty startling um, in terms of how they are discovered frozen out in the open ice slash snow. And yeah, I think like that vibe feels right. Also, I really like the, the second lead of the show. Uh, Callie Reese plays Trooper uh, Navarro. And Callie Reese is a, someone I'm not familiar with, a former uh, professional boxer. This is one of her first acting roles, but she has, I think, great presence and like brings the gruffness to the character in an awesome way. I think you can't take your eyes off her. She was really good through the first episode. And Reese and Foster have a really, I think, compelling dynamic as these two colleagues. You know, one's a detective, one's a trooper. They're in different parts of the department. They've had, they've butted heads over the past, previous cases. Uh, Navarro definitely takes an interest with some of the violence that has happened to women in the area in the past. Um, yeah, I mean, in addition to this, you have um, some other cop characters, uh, one of which is played by John Hawks, who I think has a lot of great presence as well. And yeah, I mean, I think just like, it feels like a real place, like right away. And the night country aspect of it, the fact that like, it's always dark, and 
it, it, it makes it feel, I think, really um, not so much spooky, but like I don't know, like the character. I think just the energy the characters carry themselves with, I think, makes a lot of sense, and I think the town makes makes a lot of sense. Is the kind of energy again these people have. Um, in terms of this rough, hard, hard place to live, whether you're there by choice or by circumstance, whatever it might be, and I mean, it just feels really lived into me. Um, the introduction to this lab, when we see all the scientists, we don't really know exactly too much of what those guys are up to there, but they're seemingly studying something uh, specific, and they're pretty reclusive. And um, the contrast uh, with when the base is the the, uh, the lab is alive with all all the scientists, and they're listening to Ferris Bueller doing the Beatles twist and shout. And then we jump forward to when they've all disappeared and you're still hearing that uh, movie on loop. And meanwhile, and there's a lot of cool interpersonal stuff in the town, whether it's uh, Danvers's young daughter, who seemingly is like a stepdaughter of some kind. We don't know all the dynamics yet through the first episode or it's Navarro's seemingly, uh, unwillingness to let go of a past case she couldn't solve even the stuff between john hawks's cop character and his son who also is a cop and like their dynamic and then his son's uh wife you know and then you have uh white people and inuit people and you know uh mixed mixed race uh relationships and things of that nature i think there's like there's a lot of like fun i think personal stuff here but also like the core crime the core detectiveness the mystery of it all feels right at home with what this series is about. And yeah, I think like, again, six episodes sounds great. It's going to be really tight. We also haven't been introduced yet to Christopher Eccleston's character. Very happy to see him back on HBO. Of course, amazing on The Leftover several years ago. So um, yeah, I, I think it's like immediately grabbed me. I'm very excited to watch this series. And I think it's cool that like the conception of the show is pretty interesting where Issa Lopez had this idea for a series and kind of pitched it and sold it, and HBO realized they could take this and make it true detective. So it wasn't conceived as IP per se, but almost kind of, quote, grafted into this anthology series that is more or less IP in name only, because like there's no through line between any of these seasons. So pretty cool, and like I think the early returns are good, and the advanced reviews are very strong as well, so I'm very excited. What a, what a start for HBO. They've done this in the past with like dropping a banger on you in January, like The Outsider a few years ago comes to mind, Last of Us last year as well. So very exciting. Let me know, how'd you feel about the True Detective Night Country premiere? Are you excited like me? And for more TV reviews, subscribe, and I'll see you next time. What's up, welcome back to Nostalgia. Dave here with a review of Monarch Legacy of Monsters Season 1. As of right now, the only season. We'll see if this series gets renewed. Of course, this is the first TV series from Legendary regarding the Monsterverse that we know with Godzilla and King Kong, made by Hollywood over the last 10 years. And this is a series that, you know, through through its conclusion, I'd say I enjoyed this series. I am definitely a MonsterVerse fan, so I was very willing and open to more time in the MonsterVerse, as it were. And this is a series, I think, that has a lot of room for improvement in Season 2, despite how much I did enjoy my time with Season 1. I'll be curious if we get that second season because Monarch season one, I think was kind of a victim of like being forced to service some retcon and some continuity backfilling, but also restrained by its existing continuity within the monster verse. Right. Uh, just put simply like 
Monarch, uh, its present day timeline is actually taking place in the aftermath of Godzilla 2014, the first film in the MonsterVerse, right? The best film in the MonsterVerse. People know it. Uh, banger movie. And there's other timelines, right? There's other things going on. It certainly references the Kong Skull Island from 2017. The thing, though, is like we're spending all this time with this story, this present day timeline, where like the Titans monsters have not like emerged into like regular occurrence the way they do in Godzilla King of Monsters and continue with, you know, Godzilla versus Kong. Uh, Monarch is still not a public facing organization agency the way it is by the time you get to Godzilla King of Monsters. So we're spending all this time in basically prequel land, right? It's not serving as a tie-in or lead-in to Godzilla X-Kong, the new empire coming out this March. So it's kind of for the heads, right? It's for like, you you just got to be a MonsterVerse person to be into it, I guess. And I I think that's, that's interesting. Like I'd be curious if they greenlight a second season, uh, are you going to jump ahead of several more years, probably switch up the cast a little bit, and put us post-Godzilla X-Kong? That would make the most sense to me, unless you truly are just going to greenlight the show for a while and can afford for it to be a more prequely thing. It's certainly an expensive show, lavish production, a lot of locations, etc. So we'll see about that. But for what you get, I think um, certainly the past timeline stuff, basically the origins of the Monarch agency that's the most fun stuff to me uh you know spending time with wyatt russell as uh younger lee shaw uh, as well as anders holm as younger bill randa of course that's john goodman's character from kong skull island as referenced at the beginning of the series and also uh mary yamamoto as kiko and i think all that's probably the best stuff about it you know because like the present day stuff does not do a good job of advocating for what monarch does well or what monarch's purpose is as a result some of the conflict you know like towards the end towards the finale right where it's like monarch doesn't want to go and try and rescue anyone who might be in like this nether realm here from this yeah the signal they detect because they have to uh monitor the gamma rays for future titan emergencies and it's like yeah that, that sounds fine on its face but like we just don't really know like what monarch is like doing per se you know we spend all this time with the Randa family, we spend all this time with Shaw uh, and his, like, you know, extracurricular, taking matters in his own hands type stuff. But, like, Monarch itself, we just don't have a good feel for, like, what it serves to do. And perhaps the finale where we uh, get introduced to Apex again on Skull Island, and maybe that's a reference to, like, the construction of Mechagodzilla, what Godzilla X Kong versus Kong. But again, like, we're, we're still talking, like, a movie ago. You know, I don't know. But I really enjoyed um, Keiko and uh, Bill and Lee. Like I like their dynamic. I like the early Monarch stuff. I think the the scene towards the middle of the beginning of the season, I guess like the middle of the season, uh, where we watch them drop the bomb at Bikini Atoll on Godzilla, uh, that is like riveting stuff. Kind of classic Godzilla, uh, you know, origin story. Really fun. Um, and then the revelation later on to them when they realize that Godzilla is not actually dead. Spoiler alert, right? Um, I like all that. I think the stuff with the Randa kids, you know, like uh, Anna Sawai as uh, Kate and then her half-brother played by uh, Ren Watabe, uh, Kentaro, and then uh, Kentaro's former girlfriend, May, by Kiersey Clemens. Like, 
that stuff's certainly up and down. Like, I just don't think the material is like that interesting in general. Like I was saying, like, I don't think that present day material is just as fun. Like I think Kurt Russell's pretty great uh, on the show as older Lee, and I was not surprised to see him get axed at the end uh, in the finale. Uh, you know, it makes sense that you wouldn't. Uh, the Russells, the Russells, both Kurt and Wyatt, wouldn't sign on to like stay on the show. So I get it. Um, but as soon as like that hatch opened up, I was like, yeah, okay, Lee's gonna sacrifice himself, lock it in. Um, but I think like the reunion with Keiko in that finale, that was like really moving and heartwarming because that's actually like really like developed, right? Like you're really interested, I think, in that, and like that that's paid off, that's earned. Whereas the stuff with Kate and Kentaro's father, uh, was it? Uh, so that's Keiko's uh, son. Uh, what's his name? Hiroshi, is it? Uh. Yeah, yeah, Hiroshi. Hiroshi Randa. Hiroshi Randa, like, his motivations in general, what he's actually doing, like, outside the Monarch fold, and then the fact that he was, like, a shitty, like, secret double dad, like, I don't know, like, those beats didn't quite land as much for me. Um, I think when we get the kaiju stuff, it's pretty fun. Ultimately, it's a show that can't show you too much kaiju stuff, but I think the moments you do get it is really done well. Again, like, it's excellent CGI, as we expect from the MonsterVerse. So, like, I think this is, like, it's inessential viewing for the monster verse, but it is pretty fun to spend time with. And like I said, I think there's great potential for season two to kind of refocus and hopefully like be a connective tissue in the future versus kind of be a retconny, right? Like, cause we were really like spending time with the past with this, you know, like Kate being on that school bus that we see fall off the golden gate in Godzilla 2014. And of course, surviving now. That's like heavy retcon, right? Um, which is cool, I suppose. But yeah, Monarch Legacy of Monsters. Not bad. I think it's pretty intelligent. You know, I think it's done. It's not like super hammy or anything, uh, but it's also a bit convoluted and muddy. And maybe if it was just a bit more down the middle and fun kaiju hijinks, maybe that's just broadly more entertaining. Who can say? Um, but yeah, I'm hopeful for a second season. And Certainly a MonsterVerse fan. Very much looking forward to the new movie. I'll be reviewing that when that comes out at the end of March. So let me know. What did you think of Mon- Legacy of Monsters? Did it stick the landing for you? Were you overall satisfied with it? If not, let me know either way. And for more TV reviews, movie reviews, subscribe. And I'll see you next time. What's up? Welcome back to Nostalgia. Dave here with a review of For All Mankind Season 4. The full season out now on Apple TV+. Plus. Of course, the revisionist alternate history space exploration drama series one of the more celebrated shows on apple tv plus people know this if you're four seasons in you know this for mankind when that show is humming it is humming like few shows can do and i have to say season four i thought was a improvement over season three doesn't quite reach the highs of season two of course the for all mankind season two finale iconic at this point Season 4's finale, though, I quite enjoyed overall. I was definitely vibing with this series, and I think this sets us up to a uh, fun but probably final fifth season, hopefully, to come. Uh, Hopefully, we'll get that officially announced, that renewal soon. Either way, I enjoyed season 4. I think it's a bit up and down at times, but even like the plots that maybe don't get the um, development they deserve, you know, the characters that don't get enough time on the series in the season 4, even that stuff, like, I still enjoy what we got, you know, and Overall, like, I just really enjoy the whole, like, I think, premise of the show in general. There's, like, alternate history, of course, with the space race never stops. And as a result, 
space exploration gets very advanced. We're now all the way up to 2003. And I mean, it's just so fun to me being on the Happy Valley Mars, you know, colony base. Like, I just think that's like such a fun, like sci-fi vibe uh, to be with, you know? And, you know, in terms of uh, our characters, right, of course, we have Ed finally aged up, Joel Kidman finally looking old because this is a guy who is somehow still on Mars in 2003, despite being a guy who flew planes in the Korean War. You just have to go with it, as we know. Uh, you have Daniel Poole, who returns uh, to Mars to run the base. You have Margot, who, of course, absconds uh, to uh, the Soviet Union as we know and like that's kind of like our core it's our core trio right like then from there of course we have kelly and aleda and uh dev that's kind of like that's that's kind of your cast right obviously for all mankind has had to uh switch up that ensemble as it's progressed decades in its continuity characters have been killed off or written out of the story and you kind of have only only those few familiar faces left and as a result, you kind of have to punch up the ensemble. And I think a big part of that this season would be Tony Kebbell's uh, n- uh, new character, where uh, Miles, who represents kind of the uh, the worker, the, the common man out on Mars, as Mars has uh, really blown up uh, you know, internationally in terms of its interest and really been all about a mining colony, less about space exploration less about scientific development and miles kind of is our audience like way in to this i think fun dynamic in the beginning of the of the season where it's like kind of an upstairs downstairs thing where the nasa astronauts have much more privilege and comfort than the uh, lowly helios workers that are more doing operational stuff to keep the base on online and whatnot and that leads us to a you know a worker strike at the end i think we could have used more time with this whole dynamic in general um just because I think there's a lot of meat in that bone, obviously, um, just as a premise. And I think it would have been quite interesting. Like, it seems to kind of, like, resolve itself in a frustrating or, I guess, like, abrupt way as Dev and Ed conspire to uh, hijack the Goldilocks asteroid for Mars itself, you know? Nonetheless, like, I still, like, appreciate the idea there. I think um, the Sam character as well, she's probably someone who gets a lot of short shrift in this storyline. I mean, we have this, I think, really awesome set piece in the season four finale, which is her, Sam doing the like EVA walk uh, on outside the engines, uh, tra- or the Ranger engines, transporting the Goldilocks asteroid, right? Uh, we've had a lot of big set pieces like that. We had one in the season four premiere, of course, where uh, we lose the Russian cosmonaut, who we've uh, spent so much time with, uh, Kuznetsov, and... Of course, the season two finale is like one big set piece, right? People know this. Um, we didn't have a lot of like audience connection to Sam, just because we don't have a whole lot of time with her, like a lot of character development with her. I was still pretty riveted by it just because it's like a pretty like epic set piece, but like ultimately there's no fatality there. And, you know, it kind of goes where you want to go. I think if anything, like for all mankind, perhaps struggled a little bit with like who it, what it's trying to communicate to its audience, right? Like you have Dev and Ed, who I was certainly rooting for to steal Goldilocks, right? Because like that's like ostensibly the like right point of view, right? Like to protect and preserve Mars and the continued investment in space exploration versus bringing the asteroid back to Earth and kind of killing all of that potential. 
that's where Aleda and Margo land as well, right? Despite all that, like, it's not like the alternative is, like, a super bad outcome, so it's not, like, the most, like, black and white, like, good goodbye bad guy type thing. And I think in general, like, Ed continues to be Ed Baldwin on this show, where he's a stubborn, stuck-in-his-way guy at times. I enjoyed a lot of the fights he had with Danielle throughout the season, you know, where they kind of talk about um, Danny Stevens' death. Of course, we realize that, or we learn, probably what many would have assumed, but he dies out in exile, uh, you know, out on Mars. And I think they handled that as best they could, where that was a character that people had just had such disdain for and didn't want to spend a whole lot of time with, so they effectively write him out as best they can. But it then kind of like comes to a conclusion with, I think, a nice moment for butting heads between Poole and Ed, and I really enjoyed that as I continued in Ed for his own selfish reasons, kind of latches on to this like worker unrest stuff at Happy Valley. I just wish we spent more time with that kind of thing. Um, Kelly, probably the character that we 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 previously known that gets the least amount to do on this series. I mean, you know, like and she's supposed to represent like the like platonic ideal of what you do on space, right? Like she wants to go there for scientific research and whatnot. Yeah, she just has a whole lot, like, uh, not a whole lot to do with that. If anything, we're wasting, I want to say wasting time, but, like, her character is less interesting when she has to be, like, the daughter to Ed and the mom to Alex, right? So, uh, hopefully, better things come for her on season five. Um, Also, like, a big aspect of this is, uh, like, everything with Margot, right? Like, uh, you know, being uh, a Soviet uh, space worker and then everything where she reveals her uh, still living status <laughs> to Aleda and America and the rest of the world and all of that uh, comes to head when she gets the return I think the re- return of uh, Sergei to the story at that moment as well is done very well it's, it's definitely sad when he gets uh, wh- whacked by the KGB um, Margot's boss the head of Roscosmos the former KGB handler definitely a good villain on the show uh, yeah like it has all the parts I like. I just think, like, maybe this show could have used a bit more focus, you know? Uh, but now we're to the point where, like, we feel, like, really sci-fi even more than before, right? Because season five jumps us up another, like, was it nine years? I believe we con- the cl- concluding scene is in 20, uh, 2012 where you see Dev looking at what perhaps is a water crater on Mars. I'm not really sure. But also, of course, looking at the asteroid and how developed it is as this, like, uh, you know, huge mining operation. And Mars obviously is so prosperous and, and big as a result of this, right? A lot more potential for just like really sci-fi stuff with that. Um, I'm curious like what the show is going to be with that season, assuming we get it. Just because Danielle has returned to Earth and her and Ed will be even older than they already are, you know, 10 more years in. Like, is Ed in a wheelchair still on Mars at this point? Maybe they try and tell us about some like, like slowed aging type stuff just the yada yada a bit more but i'd imagine with margo of course in fbi custody elena and probably kelly and perhaps dev are carrying a lot of the show i guess miles is going to be a bigger part of the show as well if he returns for season five we'll see but i still really enjoy the week to week of this series and i think it's a really good time and yeah let me know what you think of for all mankind season four were you happy overall with it like me did you have some things you but it up against, let me know. And for more TV reviews, subscribe, and I'll see you next time. What's up? Welcome back to Nostalgia. Dave here with a review of 21 Savage's third solo album, American Dream. 
This was only announced just a few days ago. Surprise drop, blockbuster rap album drop for 21 Savage, who has just been on an incredible run, an incredible heater for years at this point. I think, given how much I like American Dream, I think it's pretty safe to say that 21 Savage is a upper echelon, top-tier rapper in the game today. And you know, a lot's been made about this as the first 21 solo album in five years since 2018's I Am Greater Than I Was. And that is technically true, although, of course, in 2020, we did get Savage Mode 2 which was a collab project with Metro Boomin. Given that 21 is the only lead vocalist on that, I feel like that was really the last, you know, solo project from 21. Of course, we got Her Loss, you know, a year and change ago, collab album with Drake, which is definitely a collab album, but more of a Drake album than a 21 album. But I like that one quite a bit as well. And yeah, 21's back with American Dream. And I got to say, like, man, there's just heaters, man. This is giving you everything you want from a 21 Savage album. I mean, I think this is up there with his best work, and I really love the album. And it was announced alongside the upcoming biopic film starring Donald Glover and Caleb McLaughlin. We don't know when that exactly is coming out, coming soon. Obviously, 21, he's had some, you know, interesting um, or important, you know, milestones in his life, you know, becoming a permanent uh, American uh, resident, citizen in, in all respects. Uh, after, of course, being here uh, outside the traditional legal path. And to celebrate that, 21 Savage went back to his native UK just a few months ago to perform for the first time. So, obviously, very happy for him to do that. But I got to say, like, 21, just as an artist, you know, he brings out the best in his guests. He has really fun quotables, he has great flow, and he always is on really, I think, glamorous, glitzy production. And he just really, I think, puts that blockbuster brand on trap music. And, I mean, we've, if you've been paying attention, you've loved 21 since, what, 2016-ish? You know, I, I, I didn't love Savage Mo One when I first heard it, but I think pretty quickly he became uh, hard to deny in the years to follow. And we're coming up on 10 years with 21 Savage in our lives already. Pretty awesome. But, yeah, just going through this track list, man, American Dream. Uh, the tr- first track is really just kind of opening voiceover. And then we, I think, mix like a uh, transition really well uh, into this uh, opening sample on the first real track, All of Me. And then the drum kind of hits. We get into this classic 21 flow. And Savage is just doing his, you know, kind of storytelling uh, spinning of the art, you know, telling you a tale. Uh, really f- one of, you know, countless funny lines on this project. My shooter Pescatarian but he eat up the beef. My shooter pescatarian, but he eat up all the beef. I mean, just, you know, who among us uh, disagrees, right? Uh, from there, though, I think track three, Red Rum, first real banger on the project. Another sum, sung sample kind of in the beginning. You know, 21 starts dropping the woes on us. You know, you know you're about to uh, melt the speakers when you hear that. Uh, the drum tempo kind of picks up. Total banger. Uh, a lot of fun quotables. I mean, I think it's great. Uh, you know, it picks up the tempo just a little bit from uh, you know all of me as well. And then right after that, you have NHIE featuring Doja Cat, and that's kind of an interesting song because it's like I think a bit like uh, stripped down, like more understated, like more sparse beat. 
but still pretty fun collab. Doja's flow is good. I think the funny ad lib where she literally just says ad lib as her ad lib. I'm going to assume that was done for comedic effect and not just as like a reference track thing they never finished. So we'll give the benefit of the doubt there. Pretty fun though. Like, um, you know, the chemistry, I think those two can kind of have as people that can kind of occupy different pockets when they rap. It sounds really good. Uh, and then, man, just keep keeping this going. You know, the next track, uh, Sneaky. God damn, man. This one's so fire. The mm-hmm, audience ad lib, like just giving you the call and response. Uh, you know, in between uh, 21's bars. I think that's so good. 21's flow in general is really fire. Uh, the beat is from Coop. You know, when I first heard it, I was like, man, this is a glamorous-ass Metro beat, isn't it? But it wasn't Metro, so shout-out Coop. Amazing beat. I mean, this is just what you want from, like, flexing trap music. Like, this is it. This is, like, gold standard stuff right here. Uh, yeah, going through it. Next one, Pop Your Shit featuring Young Thug, Metro beat. This one was okay. Thug was pretty playful on the track, though. Right after that, though, you have another great uh, I think storytelling song from 21, Letter to My Brother, talking about a lot of his uh, friends that have passed uh, passed on in the past, um, you know, over these, like, you know, piano keys, you know, almost a little drill uh, vibey in terms of the darkness there. Really good. Um, after that, we have Dangerous, which is another, I think, just fire song. Little Dirk Spaz is on this. Again, like, 21 really brings out the best in his guests, and... I was listening to it the first time, I'm like, oh wow, Dirk actually kind of stole this song from 21, but then you get the second 21 verse, which I think is a lot better than the first verse, sounded great. Um, and then again, speaking to how good he gets, brings out his guests, the next song after Dangerous is Nina featuring Travis Scott, and you get Travis Scott rapping with his goddamn chest in a way I haven't heard from him in some time, rapping harder than he ever did on Utopia last year, sounding great. And then the 21 verse, I think, is just actually, like, insane. Like, there's so many quotables, so many lines. Uh, I mean, like, he just can give you cold-ass lines all the time, too. I feel like that's one of his brands with a quotable, right? Like, when that Choppa sing, you really think that they go miss you. Just, like, the way, like, he can be so, like, off-the-cuff, matter-of-fact about how he dresses people down. It's just very cold. It's very dark. I love it. And the Metro beat, you know, kind of has this, like, orchestral start to it. And like you have this like chopped up sample, like great stuff. You know, then from here, I think the album kind of flips around where we get a bit more melodic, a bit more like R&B indebted, I guess you could say. You know, see the real. I, I didn't love 21 kind of singing a little bit on that. I just didn't think he did too good. But then like you get some really fun collabs from here on out. Again, with this kind of different, different, different flair. You know, prove it with Summer Walker. Should have worn a bonnet with Brent Fiaz. Just like me with Burn a Boy definitely not like traditional like like hard ash trap like you're getting in the first half of the album but i think it all sounds pretty good my favorite song has to be with my guy brent uh i mean goddamn it's like kind of like a sex jam in in the way these guys go about it i mean brent literally singing about wanting to have his girl running like a faucet i mean goddamn it's pretty explicit uh but i think it sounds pretty good it's a fun collab and i mean it's just big star power for me personally as a huge brent fires fan just like me, you know, 21 and Burna Boy, I think they actually fit pretty well on this. It's a nice companion to uh, Sitting on Top of the World off the Burna Boy album last fall. So nice uh, returning the favor on this one. Uh, yeah, and I mean, I just, 21 Savage, man. Like, what more can you say? Like, he's an absolute superstar at this point. I mean, I mean, you look at the Spotify numbers, and partially due to his collab with The Weeknd, Creepin', he does big numbers with monthly listeners. 
nonetheless, though, he's got tons of his own hits. And those are songs that not, aren't just the songs with Drake either. Like He's got plenty of his own solo hits as well. Look at the numbers. And it's backed up because the music is great. I think, to me, he's like clearly and like almost peerless in like Atlanta right now. Like he's just making way better music than Future or Little Baby are doing right now. Obviously, they're just as famous as him. But to me, like no one's no one's touching Twenty One, you know, right now. Especially you know Thug Thugs in Jail. Like who who else is doing it? So, uh, but he's clearly transcended and got way more national, international beyond uh, the traditional you know like trap Atlanta space, South, Southern rap space. So, I think it's just really great to see the work continue to like really come across. Like this is an album with tons of samples like samples i can't even recognize off the first listen you gotta like really like dig in the crates and like look up on genius like what are these reference points there's a lot of like, craft i think to this and 21 can give you like the fun banger party type stuff and do it like at a really high level but he also can give you that storytelling music and that that combo is just you know that, that's what makes him so great so 21 savage american dream absolute banger i mean I don't. It's January twelfth. It's it's only just begun, but I don't know. That might be a contender for one of the best rap albums of the year, given off the kind of light rap year we just had in twenty twenty three. We'll see. Let me know what did you think of twenty one's latest effort. What was your favorite song? For more rap reviews, more music reviews, subscribe, and I'll see you next time. What's up? Welcome back to Nostalgia. Dave here with a review of the Book of Clarence, the new biblical comedy drama satire film from James Samuel, starring Lakeith Stanfield featuring an ensemble cast. This is a movie I was definitely anticipating and a movie that I liked overall. Very interesting movie to think about in terms of the end result here. You know, I, of course, was very happy this to learn about this movie because James Samuel, you know, music video director, his debut feature film, The Harder They Fall, which was the Netflix Western film from about two years ago. I liked that one quite a bit. Lakey Stanfield, one of the stars of that movie. Samuel and Stanfield uh, reuniting. Sounds great. Also, Lakeith Stanfield, one of the great American actors we have right now. He is an awesome guy. I like, I love him in just about everything. I think he's constantly crushing it. And this is a really ambitious uh, swing, for sure, to do a biblical film period, a biblical uh, film with a lot of satirical elements, especially in the beginning. I mean, this is a, I think, a steep uh, or a deep space. You know, there's a lot of biblical films some of the greatest films of all time like the ten commandments even doing a you know a, a satirical s spin off the time of jesus you know with a different character in this case clarence re- reminiscent of something such as monty python's the life of brian that has also been done so when you get something like this i think you definitely want it to feel fresh feel different feel unique and i think it does you know there's there's a ton of uh i think flair to this movie especially in the first half especially in the first act and i think it's at its best in the beginning when it's like that the, the movie eventually transitions to i think a more conventional more familiar endpoint uh, and familiar storytelling beats but in the beginning i think it i think really stands out also like the production i thought was pretty pretty outstanding honestly this was filmed in and around matera italy which is a famous decades-long used location for filming, you know, biblical Jerusalem and whatnot. So you definitely recognize the setting, but it looks great. And yeah, I think just the central premise of you have this guy, Clarence, who is basically like a low-rent, like, uh, petty criminal 
who's a non-believer. He doesn't believe in Jesus. He doesn't have the faith. He doesn't believe that anything people say Jesus does is real. But he's also kind of down in his luck, and he's got to, uh, you know, pay off the local gangster so he doesn't get killed himself. And, you know, he has some various schemes and ideas, and eventually he decides that he's going to uh, decide, no, he actually, he's a messiah, and he'll just kind of grift the locals and get paid as a result to save himself. And I think the whole build up to that point is where the movie's at its at its best, just because again, you have this flair. Like I think there's some really funny touches, like when uh Clarence and his uh BFF Elijah, played by RJ RJ Siler, when they go to like smoke at like a hookah den basically, the people once they smoke when they're high, they're literally levitating. You know, when uh Clarence has like a great idea, you literally see a light bulb over his head and he like grabs the light bulb and then he realizes he just turned into a new plan. Like there's like kind of fun stuff going on like that. In general, I think again, I, I quite enjoy the humor. You have Lakeith also playing Clarence's twin brother Thomas. Of course, this is Thomas the Apostle, one of the apostles of Jesus. And uh, that's kind of a fun dual performance, right? And yeah, like I think like all of that's like going really well. It's quite fun. You have quite the ensemble cast at this point already. Right off the bat, you get introduced to Mary Magdalene, played by Tiana Taylor. We have uh, one kind of brief scene with David Owello as John the Baptist. You have Caleb McLaughlin as uh, this like cab driver guy, basically. Uh, you have Anna Diop as Clarence's love interest, who is the sister of Jedediah, the local gangster. Uh, you have Michael Ward as Judas Iscariot. You have, later on, you get introduced to uh, a few of the white characters. You have Ben Cumberbatch, and I'll get back to him. James McAvoy plays Pontius Pilate. Uh, you have Tom uh, Glenn Carney, who is from House of the Dragon, as one of the Romans, uh, you know, kind of ruling over uh, Jerusalem as 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 it were. Uh, yeah, it's kind of the best of it, except for one other guy, Omar C. as Barabbas. Really fun flip to make Barabbas a good guy in terms of what we associate with Barabbas in the traditional biblical story. And I think where the movie starts to like kind of lose its confidence and kind of lose its message, because up to this, the point where Clarence decides he's going to become a, a messiah himself, you know, I think the movie is really kind of humming. Honestly, I was like really, really digging it. And meanwhile, like the presence of Jesus, Jesus Christ, or sorry, Jesus of Nazareth at this time, of course, Jesus, he's like kind of on the periphery. We don't see his face for most of the movie until we do get like an important revelation and he's kind of like there on the side and eventually gets like shown that no like Jesus is the is a real one like he's like basically a superhero like in this movie like you watch him like do his miracles and it's like very objectively like happening you know and everything with clearance to this point i think is like quite fun in terms of like the him being a non-believer right him being as a fictional character in and around uh you know the times of Jesus right that was all that was all good the issue though is like once Clarence decides to become a fake messiah, become a messiah himself, you know, he eventually actually kind of becomes really earnest and steadfast and forthright. And we kind of go through a, you know, predictable path where it ends up with Clarence on the cross, even though he's not the messiah. But there was a moment where God made him look like the messiah. I think the walk on water scene towards the end there in front of the Romans, in front of the town, I thought that was absolutely hilarious done to great effect but you know in general 
we just basically kind of do up this lead up where Clarence is a stand in for Christ and goes through all the things that happened to Christ leading up to the cross. And it's like, huh, like, I, I don't know. I feel like the messaging of it was, is like a bit uneven just cause like the humorous tone is almost completely sapped at that point. And you know, the, the stuff with the cross actually like, kind of graphic. It's not like patch on the Christ level graphic, but you know, it was pretty bloody. And, um, you know, it becomes a bit of a tougher watch in that moment. And again, meanwhile, like Jesus is still doing Jesus stuff, you know, throughout. So it's like, I wish that maybe we maybe had a little more focus. Um, I feel like it just kind of loses itself a little bit and turns to convention. I still quite enjoyed it, obviously. Um, I think the way they use Benedict Cumberbatch, uh, where it's once he's eventually revealed and we can clearly see like the Cumberbatch we think of, just a really funny, maybe obvious, but really funny, I think, Joe about how uh, Jesus figures in like you know art and, and fiction are often just uh white white what white, whitened right oh like this whole, oh he looks so innocent i think when you do get the revelation like you, like you see jesus's face it's a uh, nicholas pinnock is the actor who plays him it's actually done quite well like there's quite presence to how they do that and i actually kind of enjoyed the stuff with the apostles um and how they like expose judas and stuff and like that's all fun i just wish like the clarence arc was a bit more um different from where it ends up going nonetheless like i again i enjoyed the uh whole ensemble i think the stuff in the beginning again speaking to that first act where uh clarence decides to free the gladiator slaves leading to his fight with barabbas and freeing him and him becoming his best ally that's all great omar c is really fun as a sidekick bodyguard type guy from then on out um in general like most of the the ensemble you know alfrey woodard's really funny as the virgin mary um, I mentioned Pontius Pilate by McAvoy. He's definitely chewed on the scenery uh, to fun effect. That was good. Uh, yeah, like, and I think it's a great performance from Lakeith. Obviously, technically a dual role, but it's really he mainly is playing Clarence, and he's a charismatic, charismatic guy, one of the best American actors we have right now. And um, you know, R.J. Seiler, I actually think it was pretty fun from him. You know, as a supporting role, Caleb McLaughlin, you know, doing a more adult role as well. Obviously, post Stranger Things, uh, nice to see that from him. And yeah. Like, I think the humor is there, especially in the beginning. Uh, there's so much craft. Like, the movie looks amazing. Um, and yeah, I think, I think, I don't know what the craft is. Probably, like, the, the gladiator stuff was a bit, um, you know, it's not Ridley Scott, we'll say. You know, it's probably a smaller set and whatnot. It's still pretty good, though. Yeah, the Book of Clarence. I liked it overall. I wish it had a stronger finish. I wish it had a more unique conclusion. Nonetheless, a fun time. Very much looking forward to the continuing career of James Samuel, as well as, of course, Lakeith. But let me know, what did you think of Book of Clarence? Were you kind of let down by the conventional conclusion to the film? Were you hoping for something a bit different like me? Let me know. And for more movie reviews, subscribe. And I'll see you next time. What's up? Welcome back to Nostalgia. Dave here with a review of The Zone of Interest, Jonathan Glazer's fourth film, his first in 10 years. The first film since Under the Skin came out in 2013. This is another Oscar contender from A24, their third uh, Oscar contender of the year following the Iron Claw and Past Lives. And this is a really superb movie that, my God, is this an unsettling, troubling watch. But the craft, the conception of this whole film is incredibly impressive. It, it absolutely is a uh, gut-wrenching gut, gut movie, but also the audacity of what this movie does and doesn't do, I think, is what makes it stand out so much. I think the movie's really tremendous. It's in my top five movies of the year, which is coming very soon in a separate pod. And yeah, I think, like, 
just like the kind of logline of this, right? It's about the uh, life, you know, kind of like a few days in the life of the family of Rudolf Haas, the uh, Nazi commandant of Auschwitz concentration camp. And we can introduce to Haas, played by Christian uh, Friedel, the German actor, and his wife Hedwig, played by Sandra Huller, her second big role of the year following her star turn in Anatomy of a Fall. And the Haas family is living in this, you know, kind of a, a very nice villa right next to the Auschwitz camp, so much so that the yard of the Haas house is buttressed up against the literal walls of the concentration camp with the barbed wire on top and everything. You can, from the house, look out the window, you can see over the wall and you see the watchtowers and you see other buildings of the camp. You are right next to the camp. And yet, what makes this movie so, I think, startling is the fact that we never once take a single peek over that wall. Do we hear stuff? Yes, we hear stuff all the time. We see smoke coming up over the wall, but we never once go into the camp. We spend all our time sitting with the Haas family through their bucolic lives. Meanwhile, we're hearing occasional gunfire, screaming, yelling. Uh, we see burning, especially at night, so much so that the uh, brightness of the fire can like shine into the windows of the Haas family house on the second floor. We see those smoke plumes. We hear all that sound. And yet, we never once see anything else. We never go over the wall. And we spend this time with the complicity, the banality of evil, the classic line describing some aspects of the Nazi regime, right? Like, this is like the banality of evil in pure form, where you're with this family just going about their lives while their dad, you know, the patriarch, is literally the one running this camp and making decisions with business leaders of how better to uh, uh, make his gas chambers more efficient, for example, you know? And I think just, like, the that, that sheer starkness of, like, uh, just kind of sitting there and it's almost, like, unwatchable because you just have to sit there and stew and listen but never see. Meanwhile, you have these characters, the adult characters have no remorse. I mean, we, you spend time with, like, uh, Hedwig and some of the other women in the, through, come through the house where they're like picking through the clothes of, of, of Jewish Jewish prisoners, you know, female clothes and taking them for themselves and talking about how that like diet to fit into like this new coat they got, you know, it, it's horrible. And you see the children, the Haas family, there's like five kids, you know, and the youngest ones clearly have no idea what's going on. But then the oldest ones, they're kind of like next to it. You know, they have their collection of teeth they're looking at, for example. Um, it, it's just very unsettling on many manners. I think the way it's filmed, too, again, like you have this, uh, from what we understand, very accurate and complete like reconstruction of the Haas Villa. And that's built, I think, to painstaking detail, like the yard with the uh, garden, Hedwig's garden looks, looks crazy good, you know, and... The I think the filmmaking style where you have um, the way they made it is they had Glazer put 10 fixed cameras throughout the house that they made. And there's just kind of a unique visual language to the film where it doesn't focus or zoom in uh, with any like variety. It's always kind of the same look, same angle. It's always kind of locked in and you feel like you're like spying in on this family or this house. 
And yeah, I think it's just, um, it, it's, it's a really like, I don't want to say special, you know, but it is, it is very unique and it absolutely makes you feel. And like, I think it's just really audacious, like impressive, singular style of filmmaking. And like the whole movie, again, the conception of the movie is very impressive as well. There's also this kind of flip where we switch to this um, thermal imaging view. You, know, you played Call of Duty, like the thermal scope for your, your gun in the game, you know, like it's thermal imaging of a young, uh, young girl seemingly like a Polish resistance type girl who's like running out into the fields at night and like planting food scraps for the Jewish prisoners who are working the fields and stuff. And I think the way the score kind of flips on stuff like that, like it's, you you just, I think you feel a lot watching the movie. Like it's really impressive in terms of like Holocaust cinema, you know, it's basically the anti Schindler's list, which shows you everything. Whereas the zone of interest shows you nothing. And, they both have basically the same goal, but they go about it in very different ways. And obviously this is the type of thing that's not for everyone, uh, for sure. It's not a fun watch by any means, but I thought it was a really impressive, uh, well-conceived and well-executed movie. It's in my top five, which I'll be talking about very soon. And yeah, I mean, let me know about the zone of interest once you've seen it. It's had a very small, slow release. It's kind of the last big movie of the year I finally got to see. Um, A24 probably struggling a little bit with juggling all these big awards movies. Nonetheless, it's a big success. But yeah, let me know. How did you feel about it? Were you as unsettled and troubled by it, yet impressed like me? Let me know. And for more movie reviews, subscribe. And I'll see you next time. What's up? Welcome to Nostalgia. Dave here with my 2024 Oscar nominations predictions. The Oscar noms will be announced on January 23rd. So now, after some of the precursor awards and precursor nominations have come out, I'm going to predict... Best Picture, all four acting categories, animated feature, best director, and international feature film. Of course, once those Oscar noms do come out, I'll do a reaction to those. And then closer to the Oscars themselves, I'll do my full predictions for all the categories. So make sure you subscribe and come back for that. But yeah, let's just kind of dive in here. We've got the Golden Globes have happened. And of course, the Producers Guild, Screen Actors Guild, those nominations have come out. Uh, as well as Critics' Choice Award nominations, the Annie Awards. Uh, so yeah, let's kind of di- let's kind of dive in here. So we're gonna do best picture, animated feature, international feature, film director, and the acting categories. Uh, let's just kind of get right off the bat. Let's just jump right into best picture here. I think this is actually a really interesting uh, time right now, where best picture like feels like pretty like hard to not pick this like core top ten we have here. And obviously, there's like there's tiers to this, but just in terms of like the precursors and like what we're seeing here, it feels like this top ten is like really in there right now so anyway i'm just gonna say like oppenheimer killers of the flower moon the holdovers barbie maestro poor things that makes six those six are like definite locks right and then from there i think american fiction anatomy of a fall are like just about locks as well so that's eight so and 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 why i think they're locks all of them got globe nominations of course the golden globes delineate drama and musical or comedy so more things get nominated but also all those films also got producers guild award nominations um all of them except anatomy of fall got a critics choice award nomination as well now for the last two you know i had been worried that this wouldn't come to pass but it feels like past lives from age 24 my number two movie of 2023 it feels like past lives is in there man globe nom pga nom critics choice nom 
And I think Zone of Interest as well is also in there, Globe Nom, as well as a PGA Nom, which is pretty notable because that's not like a commercial film. The PGAs in the past have leaned a bit more commercial. So I think actually is pretty meaningful when a movie like that gets a PGA Nom. You could say the same about Past Lives. I think that's kind of it. You know, and then from there, I mean, Oppenheimer, Killers, Barbie, American Fiction, they all got a SAG ensemble nom, kind of the equivalent of SAG's best picture. So I'm feeling really good there. And like, here's the other thing. What movie is going to jump into best picture beyond the 10 I just listed? If we have the zone of interest and past lives on the bubble or towards the bottom. And just we'll just go at that, right? What's going to jump in? May, December? Got a Globe nom, didn't get a PGA nom. Air? Got a Globe nom, didn't get a PGA nom. All of Us Strangers, it didn't get a Globe or a PGA nom. Uh, the Color Purple, no Globe, no PGA, but it did get SAG Ensemble. It did get Critics' Choice. I just don't know if the Color Purple m- momentum is there. You know, the, mo- the movie kind of fizzled after a hot star at the box office. I, I don't know. Like, I think if, if you're going to pick something, it's the Color Purple or May December. May December with the Netflix backing. But... I mean, it feels foolish to just pick the PGA noms like verbatim, but I just like can't make the case for anything else getting in right now. It's like kind of like unforeseen if it was to happen. You know, right now we only have the BAFTA long list. We don't have the BAFTA nominations to the end of next week when I'm recording this. So that's at least a little bit more of a data point for what it's worth. Um, But yeah, like I'm going to stick with Oppenheimer, Killers, Holdovers, Barbie, Maestro, Poor Things, American Fiction, Anatomy of a Fall, Past Lives, and Zone of Interest for Best Picture. I'm going to stick with that top 10. Feels safe, but I just don't know like what else you can really make the case for right now. Um, animated Feature Film. This one I think is pretty interesting, actually. This is often not that interesting of a category, but I like it this year. Uh, the Boy and the Heron from Studio Ghibli. Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse. Those are your two heavyweights. They're absolutely getting in. They're nominated everywhere. Globe, PGA. Critics' Choice, as well as the Annie Awards, which is the Animators Guild Award, which is probably the most um, interesting to look at because that's most reflective of the voting body, etc., uh, in terms of who gets nominated. So you have The Boy and the Heron and Spider-Verse, right? That's your top two. Then from there, I think it gets interesting because you have kind of a bit of a breakdown here. You have Elemental from Pixar, which I like quite a bit. That's a Globe nom, a PGA nom, a Critics' Choice nom, but not an Annie nom. And on the reverse of this, basically, you have Netflix's Nimona, which is critically loved, no Globe nom, no PGA nom, but did get any nom, did get a Critics Choice nom. Huh, interesting, right? Then we have Mario, Super Mario Brothers movie, the biggest uh, anime movie of the year, which got a Globe nom, got a PGA nom, no any nom, no Critics Choice nom. And then I think um, anything else kind of in the mix there, you have the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movie, which got no Globe nom, but did get PGA, did get Annie, did get Critics. Uh, then you have Wish, which got Critics and... Uh, Globe, but no PGA, no Annie. You have Suzume, which I would certainly be rooting for, which got Globe, and that was an Annie, but no PGA, no critics. So, like, I think that's your field there. Nothing else is really in the mix. I think we can write off Wish, just doesn't have enough goodwill. Unfortunately, I feel like I have to write off Suzume, um, as much as I want to love, like, Makoto Shinkai, like, amazing creator, love him. Um, He'll, he'll, he'll get one of these eventually, I think, in a post-Ghibli world, but or post-Miyazaki world, but not, not this year. So we have Heron and Spider-Verse in. I'm going to keep Elemental in, even without the Anti-Non. That's three. I'm going to have Nomona in. That's four. And then what is five? Is five Mario? Or is it Ninja Turtles? 
feels kind of hard that a billion dollar anime movie is not going to get in. Not that that's the only criteria. Of course it's not. Um, then again, Ninja Turtle was quote, quite well liked. I feel like maybe that's where we have to lean right now. You know? So I think, I think you got to lean there and have Mario on the outside looking in. Very interesting. I would, of course, pick Suzume, but it's not going to happen. Um, international feature film. Another interesting one because we don't have as much predicting uh, options right now. Let's go through the Globe nominations for uh, non-English language film, which, of course, is a different category, but this is the equivalent, right? They nominated The Zone of Interest from the UK and Poland, Fallen Leaves from Finland, Society of the Snow from Spain on Netflix, Io Capitano from Italy, and they also nominated Anatomy of a Fall from France, and Past Lives. The thing, though, of course, is international feature film is about international films. So Past Lives, that is an American movie. Uh, even though it has a lot of Korean in it, it is not uh, an international film. So you can that, that's not going to happen. Past Lives will be in Best Picture, I'm predicting, but it's not eligible for international feature films. Write that off. Also, Anatomy of a Fall, despite the fact that this is a movie with a ton of Best Picture nomination juice, feels very safe in that category and some other ones as well. Anatomy of a Fall was not selected by the nation of France as its uh, pick for this category. That's the way it works, of course. The Taste of Things, which was critically adored, was their selection instead. So Anatomy of a Fall will not be in here either. So in terms of what I think will happen, of course, you can look at the full short list of the movies contending for these five spots. International feature film, I think, Zone of Interest, Fallen Leaves, Society of the Snow. Put those three in. Very, very confident about that. I think the taste of things from France will get in. Because that movie is really well liked. So that's four. Now, what is that fifth spot? There's a lot of contenders. The Globes pick Io Capitano. Maybe. I'm not going to pick that, though. I think it's between Perfect Days from Japan, the Wim Wenders movie, which is really well liked, as well as the documentary from Ukraine, 20 Days, and Mariupol. I think that's where you're looking at. Like, you got the Mads Mikkelsen Denmark movie, The Promised Land. I'm going to not pick that, unfortunately. Teacher's Lounge from Germany. I've seen that predicted by some, but I'm not going to go there either. I think it's 20 Days in Mariupol over Perfect Days for your fifth. That's what I'm going to go with. So Zone of Interest, Fallen Leaves, Society of the Snow, The Taste of Things, and 20 Days in Mariupol. That's what I think is going to happen. And, of course, Zone of Interest, prohibitive favorite, given that it's a Best Picture contender as well. Now, if France had picked Anatomy of a Fall, it probably wins this category, but alas, they did not uh, select it. Uh, let's go to Best Director here. So Best Director, I think, is also a pretty tight field, but there's kind of like a interesting like thought about where this could go. So you have your core four. Christopher Nolan for Oppenheimer, Yorgos Lanthimos for Poor Things, Greta Gerwig for Barbie, and Martin Scorsese for Killers of the Flower Moon. All four of them nominated at the Globes, nominated at the Directors Guild, and nominated by the Critics' Choice. Of course, Nolan won the Globe. Uh, lock them in. That's your four. What is this fifth spot going to be? The Globes uh, picked Celine Song, director of Past Lives. The Directors Guild picked Alexander Payne, the director of The Holdovers, a previous you know Oscar uh, darling in the past for other categories. Uh, and the Critics' Choice picked Payne as well. Now the Globes also picked Bradley Cooper for Maestro. And the critics pick, pick Cooper, but the Directors Guild did not. So it's a bit of a mix here, right? It's Nolan, Yorgos, Gerwig, Scorsese, core four, in. Is this fifth spot Alexander Payne? Is it Bradley Cooper? I'm going to say it's not Celine Song. Celine Song got nominated for a first feature film uh, category at the DGA, which I think is well-earned for sure. But we can, I think, write off Celine Song. Now, Payne or Cooper, 
here's the thing though traditionally the director's guild doesn't like line up with the dga nom- or the the, the direct- best director category doesn't line up with the dga nomination it's always something off right think of the international push in recent years where powell palkowski for uh cold war thomas vinterberg for another round or last year last time uh ruke hamaguchi for drive my car right international voting body can pull up now will they just coalesce behind Yorgos lanthimos maybe however Perhaps they go for someone like Jonathan Glazer for the zone of interest, or Justine Triette for Anatomy of a Fall. I think if anything, I would have your core four, then after that, I feel like there's some juice for Justine Triette to be that fifth spot, and not Cooper, and not Payne. I'm not sure. This is a hard one to say. It's early. Um, but in terms of the nomination, that's kind of a feeling about Anatomy of a Fall, you know? I mean, Cooper, it's so I, I, it's a bigger, more directed movie. So, like, that, to me, is, like, the better pick. But I don't know. There's something about Triette. Then, on the other hand, Cooper's a big campaigner, right? So, this is, like, a really hard one to call. I think I'm going to write off Payne. Payne's the one DGA nom that will be replaced. So, I'm going to go with Triette. Feels, 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 feels like a tough, tough, feels like out of the limb a little bit to pick Triette over Cooper. But that's what we're going to do. So yeah, that's picture, animated feature, director, international feature film. Let's go to the acting categories. So let's go to Best Actress here. We have, I think, once again, kind of like a core group, but there's, I think, a lot of interesting stuff here. Of course, the Globe separate for drama and musical or comedy, so there's a lot of Globe nominations to parse through, but let's just go through SAG as well. So you have Lily Gladstone, who won the Globe, and then you have Emma Stone, who won the other Globe. Your two favorite, your two leaders in the clubhouse here. Put them in. You also have Carrie Mulligan and uh, Margot Robbie nominated by the Globes. I think you put them in. That is four already. Now, SAG picked uh, Gladstone, Stone, Robbie Mulligan as well. So I think between the Globe nom and the SAG nom, as well as all of them also being Critics' Choice nommed, that's your core four for Best Actors. What is that fifth spot going to be? Is it a Net Benning? who got a Globe nom, but also a SAG Award nom, unsurprisingly. Uns, uh, su- uh, is it Sandra Huller for Anatomy of a Fall, who got a Globe nom and a Critics' Choice nom, but not a SAG nom? Is it Greta Lee, who got a Globe nom and a Critics' Choice nom, nom, but not a SAG nom? Greta Lee for Past Lives. Is it Natalie Portman for May-December, who got a Globe nom? Or Fantasia Barino from The Color Purple, who got a Globe nom? I'm going to say probably not. Kelly Spaney, Jennifer Lawrence also got Globe noms, so then we can write those off. So your core four, Lily Gladstone, Carrie Mulligan, Emma Stone, Margot Robbie, put them in. Who's that fifth spot going to? I'm despite the Sagnom, I am not gonna pick uh Ned Benning for Nyad. Although I'm a bit worried about that one. Unfo- I really want it to be Greta Lee so bad. I really do. Um I have a feeling Greta Lee is gonna get pushed out of this, unfortunately. But hopefully past lives, as I predicted, will stick with Bass Picture, so that's still there. So as a result, I think it's going to be Sandra Huller. You know, the international push, Naomi Fall, has good popularity right now. I think that's the pick. Also helps that Sandra Huller is also in a supporting role in the zone of interest, so she has extra awareness, I guess. So yeah, I think that's what we're going to go with. Gladstone, Huller, Mulligan, Stone, Robbie for actors. But tough one. Tough one to nail down that last spot, I think. Uh, best actor, I think is a bit, uh, uh, I guess, kind of have a, has a similar thought here. You have your core top top groups. You have Killian Murphy and Paul Giamatti, who both won the Globes. And then you have Bradley Cooper and Jeffrey Wright. 
Bradley Cooper and Jeffrey Wright, alongside Murphy and Giamatti. Globe, SAG, Critics' Choice. Lockout for those. Then from there, what's that fifth spot again? Is it Leonardo DiCaprio for Killers of the Flower Moon, who got a Globe nom and a Critics' Choice nom, but not a SAG nom, perhaps surprisingly? Is it Coleman Domingo, who got a Globe nom, a SAG nom, and a Critics' Choice nom? Is it Andrew Scott, who got a Globe nom? Andrew Scott for All the Strangers, Coleman Domingo for Rustin. Is it... It's probably not Barry Keown for Saltburn, despite the Globe nom. Uh, I'd also write off all the other musical or comedy nominees at the Globes. You know, Nicolas Cage, Chalamet, Matt Damon, Joaquin. So, if we're putting Murphy, Giamatti, Cooper, and Jeffrey Wright in, who is that fifth spot going to? Leo, Andrew Scott, or Coleman Domingo? It's a hard one. It's a hard one. You know, unfortunately, All of Us Strangers doesn't have a ton of the juice right now. Uh, perhaps a bit underwhelming there. So, like, I kind of feel like Andrew Scott's going to get pushed out here. And I guess the question of, does Coleman Domingo get in, or does Leo get in? You know, Killers of Flower Moon, they put all their eggs behind the Lily Gladstone basket. Leo's kind of happy to campaign behind her, for her. It's kind of being compared to what happened with De Niro, with the Irishman, you know, speaking of Scorsese, Scorsese movies. So I think Coleman Domingo might be the choice here. That's what I'm going to go with, but it's a hard one to say. You know, but I, I, I wish Andrew Scott could get through, but I don't think it'll happen. Uh, let's go to supporting actress. You have Divine Joy Randolph, Emily Blunt uh, for the Holdovers and Oppenheimer, respectively, Daniel Brooks for The Color Purple, and Jodie Foster for Nyad. I think that's your core four. They got all nominated Globes, SAG, and Critics. Uh, Randolph won the Globes. Then from there, what's that fifth spot going to be? America Ferreira, Globe nom, Critics nom, no SAG nom. Julianne Moore, Globe nom, Critics nom, no SAG nom, or Penelope Cruz for Ferrari, uh, who got no Globe nom, no Critics nom, but did get the SAG nom, kind of throwing a wrench into the predicting. Again, I think Randolph, Blunt, Brooks, Foster, that's your core four again. Always seem to have a core four, funny enough. That fifth spot, though. America Ferreira for Barbie. Barbie also feels a, a, bit, a bit soft right now, so I'm going to pick against that one. And Julianne Moore for May December May December also feels kind of soft right now. So it's a hard one, but it feels weird. But I feel like you got to go Penelope Cruz right now. You know, uh, Ferrari also doesn't have a ton of juice, but Cruz has gotten nominated from smaller movies before Parallel Mothers just a few years ago. International voting push will help with that. I'm going to go with Cruz, but I wouldn't be surprised if it, if, if it just ends up being Ferrera for Barbie. So we'll see. And lastly, for Best Supporting Actor, you have uh, a kind of a core top group, and then where's the last one going to go? Robert Downey Jr. Uh, for Oppenheimer, Globe Win, SAG Nom Critics Nom, The Presumptive Favorite, Robert De Niro, Globe Nom, SAG Nom Critics Nom for Killers, Ryan Gosling, Globe SAG Critics for Barbie. That's three. And then four is probably still Charles Melton, Globe Nom Critics nom, but no sack nom. At one point, people thought he could be an uh, upset player. That's clearly not going to happen now. But who else is there? That's one, two, that's four. Sterling K. Brown, no Globe nom, but he did get a sag nom. Did get a Critics nom for American Fiction. Maybe Willem Dafoe, Globe, SAG, but no Critics. Mark Ruffalo, Globe, Critics, no SAG. I think that's your field. I'm going to have Downey Jr., De Niro, Gosling in. I don't feel less confident about Charles Mellon right now. And I feel like Sterling K. Brown perhaps is above him in the voting right now. So is Mellon 
going to hold off Willem Dafoe, who gets a lot of, you know, supporting nominations over the years. Then we can write off Ruffalo for poor things. So Melton Brown Defoe for two spots. I'm going to have Sterling K. Brown in. He's amazing in American fiction. Really good. And Melton, I think Melton will squeak on by uh, through this. And Defoe will get pushed out. But this is a hard one. Uh, I don't have a good feel for it right now. But yeah, that's kind of, that, that's, um, that's the top categories for Oscar nomination predictions. Again, I'll be back on January 23rd to talk about the nominations. Of course, I won't get all these right. And then Oscar nom, or sorry, Oscar predictions proper right before the Oscars in a few months' time. So make sure you come back for that. Let me know who do you want to see nominated uh, the most, who you're really pulling for. For me, obviously, I'm definitely behind Greta Lee in past lives. Um, but yeah, let me know what you're thinking, what you want to see. And for more Oscar talk and more movie reviews, subscribe. And I'll see you next time. All right, that's going to do it for the pod this week. Next week, I'll be talking about those Oscar nominations once we get them. I'll be talking about the end of Fargo Season 4 on FX and Hulu. We have Marvel's Echo, which is out now, and I missed that. Got to get to that. Similarly, Pete Davidson dropped a new comedy special on Netflix. Turbo Fonzarelli, got to talk about that. A new movie, ISS, sci-fi movie, looks pretty cool. I'm going to try and hit that. Uh, new international film, Fallen Leaves, hitting VOD. Going to hit that. So yeah, make sure you subscribe. YouTube.com slash NostalgiaPod. Linktree.com slash NostalgiaPod. See links below. Best of 2024 Spotify playlist. Best music updated every week. Follow that. Let me know it's good, and I'll see you next week. Yeah.